Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Scott Lewis, CEO and founder of Spartan Investment Group. Spartan is one of the most impressive storage operators, investors, and contractors out there. They are all over the country. They have raised a tremendous high net worth investor base with over 12,000 different investors. And Scott runs an amazing process, an amazing business. We discussed how his military background influences the way he sets up processes, sets up incentives, and leads his team at Spartan. What business books influenced his entire company foundation and process. We talk about strategic goals. We talk about investing in self-storage. We talk about the challenges today. And we even go into a little personal coaching session with Scott and I at the end, which I thought was a lot of fun and I got a lot of value from, and I know you will too. This is a masterclass in business, in leadership, and in setting up and building very high-performing teams. Whether you're in real estate or any other business, you will find this incredibly enriching. Please enjoy my conversation today with Scott Lewis. Scott, it's great to have you on the podcast. And I thought a really interesting place to start would be if you could kind of unpack the unique lens that you came into business with, and that is your military background and how that influenced you starting the business and how that kind of influenced the best practices that you brought into the business. Yeah, Jake, thanks for having me. And and it's definitely an interesting kind of transition from the the military, whatever, whatever branch you are. I was in particular, I was army. And there's a lot of the skill sets that are applicable to, you know, our, our military service men and women, regardless of what their actual MOS, military occupational specialty is, there's some certain foundational things that are really impactful for businesses to be able to leverage. There's some of them that get talked about all the time, the leadership, the discipline, the ability to, you know, be in uniform. Those are those are kind of things that everybody knows about. There's there's a couple of key things, especially I'm an officer, and I think it's a little bit more on the on the O side than the NCO side. The, our non-commissioned officer corps is kind of the background. They're amazing executors. That the planning, kind of training, and, and education really kind of goes to the officer side very early on, and and as a lieutenant, as a captain, as an early major in any of the services. The navies have slightly different rank, but very similar to those levels versus the non-commissioned officer corps that, that are very heavily involved in the planning, but the, the the training and education for planning really starts as more of a senior. 
So when you look at folks coming out, if they just do kind of their initial tours, that 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 young officer comes in with a lot of planning experience. And I think that's really a, I'll say a force multiplier for businesses to be able to leverage. And it was huge for me. And part of that planning is, is being able to understand your operating environment, being able to assess risk, being able to assess contingency plans and put things in place that you can be safe during operations. That comes back to, you know, heavily in the real estate side of the house where I'm at with due diligence and, and some of the things that you need to do to ensure that the investments that you're doing makes it safe. You know, I think one of the big things that is that was really impactful was the ability to kind of plan and understand your operating environment. And I'll give an example that I think everybody can relate to. You know, during the pandemic, especially the early stages of the pandemic, a lot of unknowns out there. So a lot of kind of information was going around. Nobody really knew what was true, what was not true. And I guess we can look back now with some hindsight bias and be like, oh, yeah, I knew those masks were stupid. Like I knew like or whatever. But at the time, nobody did. Right. So but we still had to do things as business owners. Like, that's great that the world is melting down around you. But guess what? People still expect a payroll every two weeks. So you got to keep the lights on one way or the other. One of the things that we do at Spartan is, is, you know, we buy real estate deals and a huge component is on-site due diligence. Well, how do you do that in a pandemic where they've said that you can't fly and, and a lot of our deals are out of our state? So using the military skills that I had went through and we built a plan on how we were going to do due diligence on a site. We're in Colorado. We had to drive down or we had to go to Texas. Well, how do you do that? So I used the, the skills that I had to put together an operations plan to go down and do due diligence and, and keep parts of that of being able to understand the operating environment. We actually rented a Cruise America RV, you know, I love with it. a wolf on the side of it and packed four of us in there to drive down, right? So like, okay, that's cool. But part of the military was MTF is military treatment facility. It's, it's, what, it's, it's the language that we used to, to look at, hey, what happens if somebody gets hurt? Well, during the early stages of the pandemic, we didn't know with people getting sick, death rates and all that. We had an opportunity to go down and do a great deal, but we had to get down there to do the due diligence. So, or using my military planning, came up with the concept of medical support that was a part of our plan that looked at every 45 miles, understanding where the treatment facility was and putting together what's called a PACE plan, a primary alternate contingency and emergency plan for when people were getting sick, right? So ran it by the lawyers and they're like, wow, this is, this is pretty awesome. And it was volunteer. And there was three other folks that volunteered to jump in the RV with me and drive down. And, you know, we bought that deal for $36 a square foot. And when do we close that thing? Call it April of 2020. And now even with compressed cap rates, which are or expanded cap rates with compressed values, the, the thing's still probably worth $160, $175 a square foot right now. So you think about that, being able to operate inside of, what was a pretty restricted environment at that time, leveraging the skill sets of putting together a plan to keep people safe and still execute inside that environment. That was huge. I love it. We're going to talk about that deal. I want to also understand what the biggest surprises were for you transitioning from leading people in the military versus building a company and then leading people in the company. Like, What is different between those two sorts of people? Like in the military, you could just say, all right, guys, we're hopping in the RV. Like, that's what we're doing. That's it. In a business environment, you kind of have to ask. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people have this perception of this like 
command and control, right? In, environment inside the military. But I think we have to remember we're human beings first. And when you wrap that human being in camo, it's still a human, right? They still come together with all kinds of stupid stuff as a human being, right? Some of the dumbest things I've had happen were because of like our young soldiers that were young soldiers, right? It's what you would expect from an 18 or 19 year old human being, right? They're going to do stupid stuff. It sounds like a great idea at the time. Like, hey, y'all watch this. So it's, it's very much of that. But when you think about, you know, a big transition for me, I think was kind of coming out and it's just the amount of resources. I think with, you know, a lot of businesses can say, get in the RV or you're fired, right? So people can make a choice. It's not that dissimilar in the military. The, the, the consequences are a little bit more than being fired um, because there is the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So you can be like put in prison for failure to follow orders where not really so much in the civilian side. But it's one of those things that if you want to be a truly great leader, even in the military. So I, I'm still an active reservist right now. I'm a lieutenant colonel. I've been in for 15 years. And I bet you I've given seven direct orders that were against what my leadership team at whatever level I was leading at kind of came up with. It's not that dissimilar to what I do here day to day. Yes, you can say, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. Well, that's okay. So in planning for the military, we have something called specified and implied tasks. Specified tasks are things you're told to do, like, hey, private, fill those sandbags. The implied task would be to fill those sandbags and do not leave them in the middle of the street where the general can't drive around them, right? So if you are a good leader, then those implied tasks get done. If you're not a good leader, then then Joe, as we affectionately call him, or Joe Z for now, in the army, will leave those sandbags right in the middle of the street. So, you know, as a young leader, when you're tasked for that, you can go in there all like super hua and say, this is my way. That's okay. They will absolutely do what you say. But what they won't do is to do what you don't say. And that's those implied tasks. So when the general can't drive through because they put a bunch of sandbags in the middle of the road, it's not going to be the privates that get scuffed up. It's going to be you because... You didn't tell them not to leave it in the middle of the road. So when they're, hey, sir, you didn't say, you didn't tell me where to put it. I just filled them and put them in the middle of the road. I didn't know what you want from me. You know, it's BS, but you really can't do much about it. So, you know, when you think about it, it's it's about leading people first. And whether they're wrapped in camo or wrapped in a necktie, it, it's not really different how we react. When did you realize you wanted to get into real estate? It was kind of by accident. You know, when I joined the army, I had a condo in Chicago and I bought that condo in 2005, like public bulletin. That was dumb. So I had that condo. And when I went to basic training, I, I when I went to basic training in 2007, it was more dumb. So I kind of had that condo and was, was an accidental landlord while I went to basic training. And even when I came out, I had put myself through college and, and my high school job was a framer building houses. And I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the built environment. So it was something that was always of interest to me. I'm not really an entrepreneur by mindset or design. Of course, I am by definition, but I'm not a serial entrepreneur. I don't want to go build nine businesses. I'd rather just build one and just be done with it and just keep growing it. I'm probably less of a, of a startup mindset than I am kind of growth and kind of sustaining mindset and building processes and systems versus coming out of the ground. So, you know, for real estate, it was one of those things. I just, it, 
I really enjoyed the built environment. And when I just kind of decided that it was time to start looking at like, what do I do next? And I was with the federal government at the time. And it's, it's not a very, I guess, great place for me. It wasn't a very satisfying kind of years after the military for me. So I wanted to get into a place where I wasn't constrained by like bureaucracy stuff and kind of leveraged. I looked around, I'm like, man, I really like real estate. I have a lot of different training. So I, I will say from the federal government side of the house, I was able to get some really good training. And I really appreciate that about that opportunity. So I had all these tangential skill sets and I had some from the built environment and it just kind of made sense. And how did you take that leap from military into real estate? What was your first deals? Did you get right into self-storage or is it something else first? Uh, oh, great question. It wasn't actually a leap at all. We have a saying, hungry bellies make bad decisions. So there was at one point in time, I was building Spartan, working for the federal government, doing my master's degree, and I was a company commander in the National Guard. That was an unpleasant time in my life. My wife and I don't have any kids, so it's really easy to spend all that time away. There wasn't an opportunity cost, and she was working on her career, so it worked at that time. So I, I didn't take a leap. I, I slowly kind of came in and built cash reserves, built cash flow, built the opportunities to come in. And then when I finally stepped off, I stepped off into a situation to where I had built up enough cash reserves where I could probably not work for five years if I didn't generate any income. And our, the first deal was interesting. It was the house in between myself and my business partners. It was a crack house in Southeast DC. We had moved into the neighborhood of Hill East. It was a gentrifying neighborhood and it was still, you know, in 2011, I bought my house and I had a three in the acquisition price. I popped the top and it was a great investment for myself and my wife and my business partner did the same thing. And there was this house in between us that was just run down. And one day my wife is just like, Hey, you need to do something about that. And I'm like, okay, what? And long story short, got it, renovated it, sold it, made a bunch of money and that seeded the next deal. So for a couple of years, we were in the residential flipping business. That wasn't really for us. It just wasn't our passion. So we used another military process that we still use today. It's called the military decision-making process inside the army. Each service has a variant of MDMP as it's called. And part of that is it's a structured decision-making framework to allow you to make like very like thought out decisions in ambiguous and like complex environment, especially if you're unfamiliar with what you're doing. And it's repeatable and it's defendable. So it's a really good process. And part of that process is to create evaluation criteria that you will then use later on in the process to then evaluate courses of action to potentially achieve the mission. So for us, we wanted to build a real estate company and, and we wanted to get into commercial. That was kind of our mission is to pivot away from the transactional residential, the, the single family, like the flips and the condos and that kind of stuff. We wanted to move into more cash flowing commercial. So when we looked at that, the evaluation criteria that we came up with were the three E's, ease of eviction, ease of maintenance, ease of operations. And we did that because it was our belief that if we make a contract with somebody that if they violate the contract, we should have rights to ask them to leave. You look at the multifamily world right now and it's still a disaster. So that's one of the reasons why we are like, yeah, no, there's too much government intervention. The office, the triple net leases, and whatnot. I mean, again, it just takes a little bit more time versus like a self storage. Like if you don't pay, like in 30 days, I lock up your stuff. If you don't pay after that, another 30 days, I auction it. 
and I have my unit cleared out, ready to rock in 60 days. Easy to maintain. It's a garage. I sell air, right? That's basically what we do. Easy to operate. That's the one that storage is a little bit harder to operate than a lot of other asset classes, just because it's a very operational transactional business. A little bit harder there, but we really focused on the first two. We wanted to be able to get people out and we wanted to be able to, to have something that we can maintain. Well, that's what that process did is it allowed us to pivot away from our transactional residential into a commercial asset class that we've scaled to, I don't know, $500 million today um, over the last four or four or five years now. So that's a really powerful process that we've taught to our team. It's affectionately known as the Strategic Decision-Making Cascade, SDMC, inside of Spartan because I've taken it and taken all the military jargon out of it. So it's more palatable for civilians. All right. So in that first analysis, when you were evaluating all these other asset types and focusing in on self-storage, what at the time did you view as the biggest risk and has that risk panned out in your experience over the career? Yeah, I think the biggest risk for us moving into commercial asset is we didn't have a lot of experience doing it. That's why our first deals, like we would only do deals with a lot of project level margin. So that way, if we made mistakes, we were able to take care of investors if we made those mistakes and we could absorb them. We were probably too conservative. So that was, you know, kind of looking back on some of the deals we passed on because we were off by a couple hundred grand on a, on a multi-million dollar project. That was really stupid. Not fantastic. <laughs> and in looking back, probably having a different conversation. I'd probably be flying around on a jet at this point if we had done 50% of the deals that we had passed on. So that was really just understanding that we were new to the game You know, when we started in 2017 and really learning and, and really understanding what we were doing first and going very slow versus jumping in and, and going too fast and then, and then potentially having problems. In those initial deals, how were you capitalizing them and how did the first deal come about? So we're, we, we capitalized them in the exact same way we still are today. We had friends and family to kind of start like a lot of people do, but but then we really got out there and, and we're going to a lot of conferences. You know, I've been on hundreds of podcasts, so is my business partner. And, and I, I don't know, all told from all the Spartans. I mean, there's probably been 500 podcasts that, that a Spartan has been on. And we've built a network of or an active list that every time we have a raise, we ping of 12,000 investors with about 1,200 of them that are active that are, that are retail investors, doctors, lawyers, pilots, military folks all over the place. And that's how we capitalized them. We, we went out and we raised the money. We syndicated our equity through our retail investor network. And then we went and found local lenders. You know, as today, we don't have any institutions in our capital stack. We're looking at adding them just to kind of get to scale, but it's it's the next phase kind of as we've gotten to scale, uh, we went with the retail network. And our first deal is actually a small little facility in Conifer, Colorado. We just sold it over the summer. And Richard was the, the seller and he was a Vietnam vet. And he chose us because we were veteran owned. And we did that deal with them and, and that was our first deal. All right, so you did that deal, you start raising capital. How did you think about then scaling and growing? So from, I guess what I'm really asking is when you mapped out that framework of, okay, we're gonna start focusing on self-storage, did you have like an end game insight, an outcome that you wanted to 
be able to achieve and then self-storage was a means to get there? Or was it really just about getting that first deal done and then seeing where that would lead? So we every three years, we build strategic plans that lay out kind of what we're going to do over the next three years. The strategic plan that was in place prior to self-storage was really about monetizing and, and generating about $250 million within our portfolio and building foundational systems inside of the company that they need. Think um, IT infrastructure, HR infrastructure, all the back office stuff that businesses have to do. And it really doesn't matter what you're doing. 60% of all businesses is the same. It's people and systems that are achieving some sort of goal, whether it's a tech platform or real estate or dog shoes, whatever it is, like a lot of that stuff is very similar. It's why the degrees are, are you know, very similar and then they, they customize later on. So we had that plan in place. And then when we started to get going in self-storage, we made a slight refresh of that plan because it was older, right? And it still, it still contained a lot of residential stuff. And when we realized that it was no longer completely applicable, we went back through our planning process, which we do every three years. We just actually did it in 2022. So our current plan is 2023 to 2025. And we published it on our website. We're like, take it. Like, strategy is nothing if you don't know how to execute. It doesn't matter. So that's really kind of how we how we built our plan. And every three years, we move those goalposts to whatever we want to achieve. What does the planning process look like? So when you did it in 2022, who's involved in the process? Do you go somewhere? How long does it take? Kind of break it down. Yeah, so we do a lot of planning at Spartan. That kind of goes back to the military, right? And per Army doctrine, there's three levels of an organization, strategic, operational, and tactical. You think strategic, 30,000 foot view, like big pie in the sky stuff. You think tactical, which is the stuff that happens every day on the ground. Where a lot of organizations fail to understand is that operational level. The civilian term for that is middle management. They're really like, the really important thing is understanding how that middle management interacts with both the higher level strategy and the lower level tactics. It's basically taking resources from the strategic level, think capital, people, relationships, all of those resources that are usually like those big resources that are usually held at the at the, the C-suite or the executive vice president at the organization, they need to take those resources and pair them up with the people at the tactical level to achieve operational objectives. So when we look at that, we really use a catch ball methodology for our strategic planning. We do it every three years and it goes top down, bottom up, top down, bottom up, and it goes back and forth with that. And we usually take about six months to build a strategic plan. Some firms, when I was doing my master's, I interviewed some and they're like, yeah, we get in a room for two days and we build a strategic plan. I'm like, no, you don't. Like, you do not do it in two days. Sorry, like just not, just not a thing. We do three-year strategic plans. A lot of government stuff does five-year plans. I think that's a little bit much for corporations. Some corporations say they do a one-year strategic plan. That's bullshit. You don't do anything, like unless you're in a hyper, hyper growth call it over a hundred percent like like revenue growth per year you're not doing a one-year strategic plan i will argue with anybody on that that you can accomplish a strategy in one year that's operational so i think the saying is we overestimate what we can do in one year and underestimate what we can do in five or ten or whatever the hell the new moniker is now that's really where this comes into place and we do strategic planning every three years it involves everybody in the company. We have a strategic planning infrastructure that we built. 
And we start by environmental scanning. That's just really understanding your operating environment and digging deep. And it's not enough to just do it at the executive level. You got to understand it down to all the way to the team member level who's on the front line, whatever business you're doing. And it's not hard. We used to do it as a company when we were little. Now that we're, we're bigger, we're not a big company by any means. We have 150 people, but that's way too big to do this as one group. So what we do is we'll kick it off at the executive level. The, the various teams meet together and they're all generating information through every, every aspect of the process. And it goes from environmental scannings to something called alternate futures, uh, strategic imperatives. And if you think of alternate futures, that's one that's actually pretty fun. And alternate futures is just trying to envision what the futures would look like. And, and it goes from utopian, like everything is like gumdrops and lollipops, down to dystopian, where dystopian, a lot of people have trouble with that because they don't think as bad as it could. Or people don't think that there could be a nuclear war, but there can be, right? So when we think of the stuff that's going on in the world right now, it could get pretty dystopian. China attacks Taiwan and things are going to get sideways pretty fast. So when we think about that dystopian, I mean, your dystopian could be your business is falling apart or like half of your staff is being drafted for World War III. That's the dystopian side of the house. So that's most people don't get down there. They like utopians easy. Dystopian's pretty hard. And then there's a couple in between. And that goes into gap analysis and then producing strategic goals and objectives and then ultimately the plan. And like I said, it takes about six months because we want to give people the opportunity for their voice to be heard to craft the best plan that we can. And what are you and the exec team doing from the point after the initial phase when it goes to other members of the team and then kind of volleys back for six months? Like how 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 are you managing that process? And how is it remaining a priority amongst everyone in the organization? Because it's my process. I will call shenanigans on any CEO that delegates uh, his or her strategic planning process. If you delegate something, you downgrade the importance of it. And as a CEO, it's my opinion that one of the most important things we can do is set the strategy and set the vision of the organization. So if you delegate that down to a chief strategy officer or your COO or your CFO, or you do even worse and you outsource it, that says something. So the way that it stays a priority is because I say so. And as far as communicating and, and collecting information, we'll usually meet monthly as a leadership team to, to digest the information. And then we go into an intensive three-day session to where we collapse a lot of the information that we've heard into our planning process. And then we come out the other side with draft strategic goals and objectives. And that gets taken down into the teams to help them understand, to get any ideas, to see if we've missed anything as an executive team. And then it comes back, gets finalized, puts into a plan, and then gets sent out. And you know, for any of your listeners that, that are interested, they can download our strategic plan from our website at spartan-investors.com. They can go get it. It's awesome. And we had a conversation. I did some homework. I started reading some books. We're going to talk about that as well. So I want to stick on the strategic plan a little bit more because I think it's it's really interesting. So how then are you thinking about scaling the company, keeping strategic decision-making with you and your partner, but then also delegating and building an organization that can scale and create enterprise value. Like, Help me connect 
the dots to be able to do that without just being small because you have to do everything yourself, which is not what you said. So, no, no, exactly. And, and remember, if you if I tie back to the different levels of an organization, what we're talking now is the strategic level. So what we do is we create that three-year plan and then every single year we create what we call annual roadmaps that look at nesting with the strategic plan. So nesting is a concept that everything is connected. So everything down from our strategy down to the individual task level, we use a system called LeapSum and it's built on the objectives and key results methodology, the OKR methodology. That's our base system for how we define our goals and kind of what we're going to do. We use OKRs. And by creating that next level plan down, each department, each leader has their own annual roadmap. So our our people team has an annual roadmap. Our legal team has an annual roadmap. We have two operating businesses. Our property management company is a standalone entity, as is our construction management company. Those have two presidents uh, that report directly to me. Each one of those has their own roadmaps. The construction company is now actually getting to a state where it's mature enough to start building its own strategic plan that nests with Spartan's overall strategic plan. Our property management company is probably one year away from being like being ready to move out of the incubator and you know be that wobbly giraffe out there kind of on their own and build their strategic plan as well that will nest to ours. So down from there, the teams build individual plans to all the way down into the teams so that everybody is aligned and nested with the higher level strategy. So it takes strategy and it turns it into execution through the OKR methodology down to the individual. And then you tie in KPIs there to determine how you're doing. And, and then you get kind of the, the organization that's written about in a lot of these books. Let's talk about the results component of OKRs and how you hold your team accountable to accomplish those goals. You can easily measure them, but what do you do if they're not producing the results that you want? So, so far, we we haven't had too much of that at the executive level. As it rolls downhill, we have, and they get fired. We do no performance improvement plans. We don't believe in it. It's kind of a one or zero. You'll get talked to and just say, hey, you're really not hitting it. If there's a second conversation, like HR is usually there. Um, we do not tolerate that. We have a lot of freedom, freedom and respe- uh, responsibility here. We base our operating model very similar to the to what Netflix has published in No Rules Rules. It's a, a book that I highly recommend folks read. And we really trust people to do the right thing. We have no official leave policy. We have we pay very well here for for a company of our size. We have a great benefits package. We give people a lot of freedom and reflex, like flexibility. There's no hours in the office. There's none of that nonsense. There's also no tolerance for not getting, like not getting your stuff done. It's usually a conversation if something gets missed of like, hey, why didn't this get hit? And it's something that we're constantly tightening up. Kind of given the two things, we are much better planners than we are holding people accountable. And it's actually, that's our key kind of metric for next year is 100% accountability and getting really down to the like kind of the nitty gritty and and really increasing our accountability and the system of leapsum that we implemented this year is really helping with that because it ties everything together so it's very 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 hard to hide between disconnected systems does accountability mean perfection or is that different 
So we have it's an old army saying, uh, 80% on time is better than 100% solution late. It's kind of one of those things that we have that same mentality if it's internal. If it's external, the 80% solution, not really so much. That It's probably more than 98% solution. I think if you try to go for perfection, there's certain instances where you have to have perfection. There's certain instances that if you're trying to grow, perfection will be the enemy of growth. I'm not advocating for sloppy work. I'm advocating for realistic timelines and realistic kind of perception out there if you're growing. Most folks, you know, if you make a mistake, most folks aren't really irritated. They, they're irritated at this, the mistake. They're not really mad if you correct it correctly. You know, just, just today we have, um, I live up here in the woods in, in, in Evergreen, Colorado, and we had a tree service come in and they did a crappy job the first time. And I was on the phone with a guy. I'm like, listen, man, you did a crappy job, man. Take your medicine, come back out here and fix it. And he's like, I'm so sorry. You know, I, we, we never do stuff like that. I'm like, yes, you do. Cause you just did it. So don't give me that nonsense and tell me you never do this. Tell me how you're going to fix this here. Accept your mistake. And like, tell me how you're going to fix this. So I'll give you a, for instance, for 80% in on time versus hundred percent solution late. One of the things that, that I wish the military would get past is PowerPoint. If, 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 I would love if Al-Qaeda figured out how to destroy PowerPoint. That would be fantastic. It would make everybody's life much better. I watch, I watch field-grade officers, captains and majors, spend hours screwing around with font formats on slides. Now, if we want to go back that like everything is an indication of how you do, and if your bed corners aren't at 45 degrees, the, like you're, you're going to get all of your soldiers killed. There's something to that, like attention to detail, there's something to it, but at a point it becomes like more restrictive than it is helpful. And if you if you think about Pareto's law, it takes as much time to go from zero to 80 as it does from 81 to 100. So there's a lot of things inside of an organization that 80% is good enough. There are some things that it absolutely doesn't. If you're a surgical center, 80% probably a bad idea, right? Um, not fantastic. But if you are, you know, I don't know, a car, if you, if you own a bunch of car washes and if there's going to be certain things inside there that the 80% solution is going to be okay inside of your business. Again, I'm not advocating for sloppy work. I'm just being realistic that if we strive for perfection in everything that you do, You'll either A, have a very, very high turnover culture, which is okay. Some some folks want that. McKinsey, if you work for McKinsey, the 80% solution, there's probably some McKinsey folks that are going to be listening to you be like, that guy's an idiot. We would never do that. Yeah, they might be right. But that's not the culture that we want here. We want to be able to do a lot of things. And there's certain things that we're okay doing at the 80% level. Never anything less than that. That's the wrong answer. You start to get less than 80%. So you're not a fan of PowerPoints, but are you a fan of the Jeff Bezos method where you write the memo, you read the memo in the meeting, and then everyone talks about what the memo said? I'm not necessarily a huge fan of the memo per se from that kind of format. I am uh, a huge fan in making sure people have the information that they need and I don't want to be read to on slides, right? So if somebody if somebody wants to do a PowerPoint presentation, that's fine but give it out first and read it and be ready to talk about it. And, and on each slide, you should be telling me something that I can't read. You should be giving me context or you should say, hey, here's what it is. Let's just talk about it. 
we have something called an executive summary, an X sum inside here. It's when we review kind of the initial deal metrics. It's it's required to go out 48 hours in advance, and it's uh, it's essentially a Jeff Bezos memo for the for intense all intents and purposes for a new investment. When we get into that meeting, it's like hey. Yes, for a new investment. And it's, hey, when we get into that meeting, you got two or three minutes to give me some stuff on that over. Don't read this to me or I will get up and walk out. All right. So then what are you looking at in a weekly or monthly meeting from your team in terms of KPIs? And what does that meeting cadence look like? So we have a lot of dashboards internally. A lot of people do, right? So it's it's not that dissimilar from what other folks are going to look at as far as their KPIs. Each of our departments has two to three that they kind of take a look at, and then they roll up to an executive dashboard. They have their own dashboards of of you know anywhere from you know five to seven, three to five, whatever they're whatever is relevant for them in their lines. You know the the legal officer number of open lawsuits or you know whatever number of open loans that they're reviewing. So. The metrics are all over the place. We try not to go too crazy because if you measure everything, you measure nothing. So we really do try to prioritize and keep them where they're digestible at the different levels. So at my level, probably have 15 kind of ones that we look at. And they're not they're not hugely dissimilar to what you would think of in a normal business. We're a relatively simple business here, especially on the finance side of the house. We have some complex legal structures just due to the nature of the investment in the, in the legal side. But our finance side is relatively e- easy. We're a smaller company. We're at 150 people. So our people side is relatively easy. So, How often do you meet from an, an investment committee standpoint or an acquisition standpoint? Once a week. And what's the format of that meeting? Because, I, okay, so let me ask a little bit differently. We have a small-ish investment team. So I have three or four investment professionals I'm pretty engaged in deals that we're looking at. We screen deals before they can go anywhere. Are you looking at deals for the first time where your team is going through a criteria and you know nothing? Or are they kind of whittled down where you're somewhat in the flow and these meetings are very, very informational for you? Somewhere in between. We've given them... We we have two different lines of effort. Development team, which is going after ground up developments. And then our existing storage team, both of them have pretty tight buy boxes that they understand. So they're looking at you know hundreds of deals. I don't get involved until they're ready to go to Exum. Like we, in some cases, we even have signed LOIs because we've gotten to the point to where they know what's going to die in investment committee. And if there's something that is kind of off a little bit, like for instance, we had a deal that they brought it, they brought it to investment committee before they did anything with it because it came with like 15 section 8 housing units and they're like mm, i don't know how scott's going to react to this and they brought it and i was like nope denied move on so thanks thanks appreciate it like but that was one of them otherwise it's just like hey it's 40,000 square foot in a market that we're already at here's the price here are some deal conditions here are some unique things about this here's the plan here's what you got and and then it comes to investment committee and they get a go or no go on that. So it's a, it's a pretty structured meeting. And, and most of them I will know nothing about until I get the email. Hey, Exum coming up. Here it is. Are you incentivizing your investment guys on an eat what you kill mentality or something different? They have small base salaries, and but the majority of their upside is based on a percentage of whatever they bring in. You'd said 
earlier that you miss doing some kind of generational lifetime deals over a few hundred thousand dollars of underwriting discrepancies or challenges. Can you talk about the early days and the things that you miss, but maybe in the context of your overall investment horizon timeline and how you think about timeline and investing in real estate? Yeah, number one thing we screwed up was rent growth. We, at the time, we were, I was not allowing them to underwrite this massive rent growth that was, that was other folks were underwriting. And that was dumb. That was really dumb because we could have, you know, underwritten 30% of what actually happened out there, which was probably 50% of what the other competitors were underwriting. And we would have gotten it. And that was a huge mistake. Uh, And it was, it was a, hey, like nobody knows what's happening. Like, we don't know what we can achieve because we're new to the operation side of the house. So let's go really conservative. The good news is some of our deals are producing, you know, mid twos to like low threes as far as a multiple and in real estate, that's a lot. Um, especially non-opportunistic stuff. That's a lot. So yay for investors, um, not fantastic for us because we could have had a lot more of that stuff and we could have hit like, you know, low twos on a value add deal, which is still fantastic for the real estate side of the house and just had a lot more of them. Going forward, we've just really tightened up our underwriting and, and like everybody else, deals are dying, we're missing deals, we're not bidding on a lot. It's, it's not dissimilar to what everybody else is feeling at this point. Why do you think you should have increased the rent growth and what held you back at the time? historicals is what held us back. We were looking at what kind of the historical rent growth was. Self-storage was coming into kind of this maturation. One of the other things is when when institutional capital has been here for a long time, but not like it is right now. So there was a different cap rate compression that came in because they were being underwritten differently by Wall Street. And that caused some compression in cap rates that kind of came in pretty quickly over the last couple of years with some of the really big transactions that's happening. I think as far as the, the rent growth, it was one of those, we were just being really conservative and we didn't have the operational experience to know what they should have been. You know, when you look at what we did, we built a property management company at the same time. The jury's out whether that was the good idea or not. We built up tremendous value in our opco, but at the same time, we probably missed out on a bunch of deals that if we would have went to one of the third party managers that help you with underwriting, they would have underwritten them differently. And then we would have gotten those, potentially gotten those deals. But we we didn't have the experience to even to, to manage the managers there. So we wanted to do it ourselves to learn what it was like to get out there and be on the front line. So the jury's out whether we did the right thing or not. Does being vertically integrated give you a competitive edge over other people and for raising capital? I think it does for sure, because not only are we vertically integrated on the prop co side, we're also on the construct co side. So, you know, we have an internal construction team that they're not the cheapest out there by any means, but what they're not going to do is screw us with change orders that are held back in the bidding process so they can win the bid. They're not going to be shitheads if something goes wrong. And we've had that happen. Everybody has, right? Construction is pretty risky if you're the developer, right? You're you're there holding the bags and ultimately they're your investors in a, constru- in a construction crew in which most developers are, the information environment is asymmetrical towards the contractor. So if there's not that high level of trust there, a lot of stuff can get buried pretty easily on the construction side. I'm not saying the general contractors are bad by any means, but 
having them in house just mitigates the risk of us choosing a bad one because there are bad there's bad everything out there right and on the construction side we had a job that we you know, we didn't do it ourselves because we were worried about it and i think the construction guys were good they just made a lot of mistakes and they ended up costing us a couple hundred grand and i'm like man i can screw stuff up for probably cheaper than a couple hundred grand so I'm not getting a lot of the value that I wanted out of uh, hiring a GC and storage is relatively simple. If I was trying to build like complex data centers or, you know, a a 50 story building somewhere, that's probably not something I would GC. A bunch of metal boxes. uh, Yeah, I will GC that all day long. Are you thinking of each of these businesses, the capital side, the construction side and the property management side as businesses with their own enterprise value that theoretically carry their own value that you could one day sell or use to acquire other businesses? 100%. They've already been valued independently. Each one of them has its own valuation that rolls up to the totality of the ecosystem valuation, but each one of them absolutely could. There's some shared services right now. Marketing, HR, accounting, finances are all shared services. Tech all shared services, so they're not quite on their own, but they, they could be. Or if or if another private equity company had those shared services, the, the hub and spoke model definitely exists out there in a lot of different places. As long as they had the shared service model, they could buy the operational component and plug it into whatever they were doing. We are also looking at rolling up other opcos underneath there that are aligned with the business operations of both of our property management company and our construction company. Is that something you do to break into a new market? It could. Um, we're spread out like quite a bit in, in the new markets. And the, the thing with having a captive supplier jobs from the construction management side is if we need them to break into a new market, we tell them to go do it, right? And they go get licensed. It's not like they have to convince somebody that they should be there because they're already captive internally. So. You know, when we started, they were licensed in one state and in 24 months, they have licenses in six more states. So they can break into a market from us and they do build for other people. So our construction company are building facilities for other storage operators. And one of them is a new market, but other ones are in our markets or by market being state generally. Different micro markets, but but major markets as far as based on states, um, they're building for other folks in those states right now. Talk to me about your investment timeline for Spartan deals. Are you underwriting these for a five-year hold, 10-year hold, a forever hold? What's the strategy? Usually five-year hold, plus, plus or minus one. And we have some that are individual syndications, so we'll call it deal by deal. Uh, some, some of those deals are portfolios. We had one individual syndication that was $100 million in 18 properties. That's larger than most people's funds, at least in the smaller space where we operate. We do have some funds as well, and, and it's you know kind of Baskin and Robbins, 31 flavors. Some people really enjoy the funds. Some people really enjoy the individual syndications, so we do both. All right, I wanna talk about this $100 million deal because that one is fascinating to me for two reasons. One, it's, I think, all high net worth capital, and it's institutional, meaning you're probably competing against private equity firms. So can you kind of break down that deal from the capital side, how you raised it, how you got it done, and what your competitive edge was that allowed you to complete the deal? I think, you know, as far as the, the that $100 million deal, 
So that was a lot of properties that needed a lot of work. So a lot of the institutions shied away from it because it was heavy, heavy, heavy value add. Um, and we're still working on it. And you know, from the capital stack side of it, we did have some partners that came in and brought a couple million dollars here and there. No institutionals. One crowdfunding source that came in and brought a couple million bucks and a couple of other syndicators that joined in on the GP side to help us raise that money. And then, you know, that was a deal all in Texas and it was just a larger deal for us. And it was in 2021. So the, the, the capital was, was raised in a shorter amount of time. And one thing that made us a competitive edge, we have a lot of really good broker relationships and people say that like pretty flippantly and it matters to be able to do that and to get the ability to execute and get it done, even in a tough environment. And when you're raising capital for those deals, setting aside some of the others that that came in, what is the typical capital raising process? And I think now is probably a little bit slower it is for for me, but what is the timeline and what's your process with raising investors? So we have two different lines of effort right now. We have the funds, which is which is your, your standard fund, right? You launch and then you're continuously raising. And each time we have a new deal coming in, we do a webinar to talk about that new deal that's coming in, both to inform current investors of like, hey, this is what's coming into your investment. And also to incentivize new investors that, hey, deals are coming in. On our individual syndication side, we produce an offering memorandum like everybody else does. And then we host a series of webinars. And generally, like if those are individual deals, the races are relatively short. They're also smaller, right? We just did an individual syndication that that filled up pretty quickly, but it was five million bucks. I mean, in, in the big money world, somebody could just easily write a check and be done with it, right? So our minimums are 50K, our average is about 111K kind of as, as our investors. And that creates a lot of investors. We have a, a relatively large investor relations team for all those investors. And you know, when we talk to institutions, it's one of those things that they see that as a big pain. But for us, part of our mission is to improve lives through our values and doing that through our investors. We have friends, families, teachers that, that come in and, and invest with us. And that makes us feel like really good to be able to help those folks because it just puts a face to the investors. If you, if you go to Wall Street, there is a face there. It's just it's just buried multiple layers down because eventually you're going to get pension money. And those are those are teachers and firefighters. They're your same you're investors. Never going to see you're never going to in- interact with them. You're, I just had lunch with one today who he owned a, a, a chain of smoothie shops and just to sit and talk with him about his life and what he's been able to do. And, and that, that to us is more kind of in line. Now we are interested in coupling that with an in, like one or two institutional partners so that we can have both human connection with the individual investors, but also scale that Wall Street can help us bring to kind of get to another level um, and just pair those two things and try to try to find a, a really good match between the two. Do you use PowerPoints in your webinar? We do, but but we're really good at designing them. There was a, there was a YouTube that came out that was basically like, you get three things per slide, that's it, and it has to be with a picture. So the vast majority of it, like we're not showing charts, like some people will put up like like a pro forma on a <laughs> PowerPoint. Yep, it's yep. like, sweet man, like no, like, there, like all of that information is in the deal room, go get it, here's the so what, like here's one slide with three numbers on it, like, and that's it. And then go in the deal room and go bananas for as much detail as you want. 
and then go get it. But we like our PowerPoints are relatively simple. I want to talk about fees for a little bit because fees have been how I built my business and they're probably how you built your business and they're how every real estate investor builds their business to go out and do deals because there's no other way to support it until you have an exit. Institutional investors, I've found try and cut down on fees or you know magically create some scenario as to how you're going to be able to support your business and manage their investment without any fees. How has your fee structure enabled you to build Spartan? And how are you thinking about it now as you're dealing with potentially considering bringing in institutions? Yeah, so we, we've never been apologetic about our fees. In fact, if I'm giving presentations on how to do diligence on a sponsor, fees are one of the things that I tell every investor to ask about, but not in the way that you're trying to nickel and dime that sponsor. What do you want to do? You want to nickel and dime them so that like you're not paying them very much? How much do you think they give a shit about your investment if you're trying to nickel and dime them um, over the fees? And especially you got to understand that like you're right, until the exit's coming, that but there is no money coming through if there isn't fees. So you know, we we have very much built a business on fees and, and I'm not ashamed of that whatsoever. It's like when I first came out of the gate, I kind of came in with a, a, a very much a lower fee mentality and that was the wrong thing. That prevented us to get some growth and to get the absolute best people on the team. If you're a real estate investor, like you should be wanting to make damn sure that your team is well paid and well compensated so they're motivated to work for you like it you really want to nickel and dime your doctor is that who you want to like nickel and dime i've just i've never seen another way i don't care what the other i I could care less what the fees are on when i invest with other like operators if they were super egregious i probably would ask them like hey man they seem egregious tell me what you're doing with them right if you're going out and buying four Maseratis and a, and a yacht and a private jet, like, nah, right, maybe you're going the wrong direction if you haven't had some exits. But if you're, if it's, hey, I'm keeping the lights on here and I got a team of 150 people and payroll of $700,000 a month, that's what I'm paying. That's a good, that's a good answer. Now on the institutional side, that has been a hiccup for us. That's been a hurdle. And it could be. If we go out and we get institutions that are trying to nickel and dime it, screw it. I'll reinvest in those 12,000 people that are on my list. And I'll figure out how to raise it like in that direction versus being nickel and dimed by institutional investors that that may not have the, the, the best kind of viewpoint. I want to be fair on both sides. I want to get them what they need. And I want to be able to build my business. And especially in our world, a lot of our debt's recourse. So if I'm taking on recourse debt, then there, there should be something to that as far as the risk that I'm taking. So it's a balance, not being nickel and dimed on fees, but not being egregious on it as well and being compensated for performance on the backside. So it's just, I think really the, the fee structure is about being finding the right partner that allows you to be collaborative on that such that like all goals are achieved. Yeah, it was interesting for us in hospitality because during COVID, you know, our revenue essentially shut down. So we were drawing or earning accrued fees off of the invested capital. And I had some investors say, hey, why don't you just defer the fees and continue to accrue them? And for like maybe a month or two, I I did. And then I said, wait a second, who's going to run all of these investments that we have? And maybe I can defer 
the excess portion, like the profit, but then also looking back on that, it's kind of like, who am I to have a business where it's somehow okay not to have a profitable business? Because the business is the real estate business. And then the next thing I thought about was if this deal turned out to be a home run, I wouldn't then try and renegotiate my waterfall on the back end because it was more successful than we underwrote. So sometimes we definitely struggle with it on both sides, but I found that you easily can fire investors as well. Yes, you can. And I, I think that's, you know, uh, you know, something going back to the other investors, it's just, you know, whether you're the institutions or not, there, there's plenty of people out there that, that are going to need to sign up for that. I just, I, I struggle with that type of relationship because it's very transactional. And that's not something I don't want. I, I don't want to do a single transaction. I would rather, I'm a big fan of going deep versus wide as far as relationships. There can be some danger in that. I just, I, you know, for me, I, I don't want it to be transactional. That's not, that's not something that makes me feel good. You know, regardless of whether if I'm taking the whole thing or, and, and I'm winning and I'm like, ha ha ha, or the investors on the, the money placement is like, hey, you get like half a percent and that's it, right? Like, so you figure it out. Neither one of those are good environments and they're not going to be environments that perpetuated any time frame going forward. So it really is about like understanding what is valuable to each person and then going from there. And if it's one of those things where it's a small growing business, some fees up front, probably a good idea. But then you negotiate on the backside. If it's an established operator and, and they've got millions and millions of dollars and they don't care, then flip it the other way. Like take less fees and put more on the backside, like whatever it is. But you know, try to understand the motivations and the requirements for like whatever side it is and, and find the right partner. And they're going to be out there. It might be hard. You might have to kiss a lot of frogs before you find the, the right institution or the right operator. If you're the institution and you want to go out there and you don't want to charge a lot of fees, that's fine. There are going to be operators out there that need that capital. You just got to go through a lot of them to find it. 100%. I want to talk a little bit about like the actual self-storage deals themselves and what you're investing in. Maybe we can start by explaining what's changed in self-storage since you started investing. You mentioned cap rate compression. That was obvious in 21 with institutions coming in. What else changed in the business throughout your history with it? My history is pretty short, so I'm not going to be fantastic here because we started at it. We started kicking the tires in 2016, right? So I, I only have seven years of experience. So I don't want to position myself as this old grizzled operator because we're, we're just not. I think, you know, one of the things that, that has changed a lot is the institutionalization of the space. There's a lot of institutional money that's come in here recently at a, at a faster pace than it has, you know, even, even before 2016. And with money comes generally kind of a maturation. I think there is a consolidation that's going on. So it's getting more professional out there. Extra space just bought life storage. Public is on a tear to roll up larger companies. They just bought Simply Storage from Blackstone. A lot of groups are aggregating and combining. A lot of other groups are buying portfolios. So there's just this growth, this this maturation that's happening to a more professional asset class. I think it's probably it's happened to every single asset class. Multifamily, I, I don't know. I'm not a multifamily investor, so I'm guessing somewhere in the 80s and 90s, it really started to institutionalize industrial here. You know, recently, it's all the same stuff. So we're going through the same thing. Uh, one thing that's really helping self storage is technology. Technology obviously helps every business, but I think for us because 
a lot of the unmanned technology that's coming out there to self-serve for customers that historically hasn't been there to be able to go on and rent, you know, show up to a site and completely rent a unit without ever talking to a human being really has helped the industry. And with more money coming in, there's been more technological advances to help support operators out in the field. Marketing is getting a lot more sophisticated than it was in the past. And there's just a general level of increase of sophistication across the board. What are you seeing as the biggest challenge for a lot of your competitors out there in today's environment? I think it's, it's, it's you know, pretty much the same thing for all of us. At some point, you're competing with the dumpster, right? So that's kind of a big thing in our end. And I think we got to a point during COVID with the rent increases that people are like, that dumpster looks pretty good um, at this point. You know, that piece of construction paper that your kid glued some macaroni to 47 years ago that you've had in storage for 30 of them. Really, it's starting to lose its luster. And that's happening a lot. So we are losing customers. Everybody is. Occupancies are down across the board because people are just like, ah, you're kind of at a point. So rents are coming down and they're just coming down to what was normal. You know, people are reading like, oh, stealth storage is over. It's doomsday. No, it's not. If you were to take a line and you were to go from call it 2010 to 2019, and you were to continue that line on the growth pace that it was, and you were to eliminate the nonsense and shenanigans of 2020, 2021, and even 2022, what you would start to see is rents and everything are decreasing, but they're still above what they probably would have been projected to be in 2019. The issue is a lot of people underwrote bananas like in 2021. We underwrote better growth rates in 2021, but not bananas. Some people were underwriting 12, 13, 14%. And I mean, you can make anything work. You can make a dumpster fire work at those rent growth. It wasn't sustainable. We went to five, six percent, which was a, which was a a lot for us. We were normally at two or three percent before that, and I think that's what's just happening is it's starting to come down. So people that bought in twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two that didn't have flexible capital or like good debt or a good operations team or something are starting to get into a situation that is just a little bit more uncomfortable than it was because it's getting a little bit more challenging out there. How has your strategic plan changed through this new real estate cycle that we're going in? Or is that strategic plan kind of agnostic to real estate investment strategies and mostly covering bigger strategic objectives that are immune from kind of little market blips or cycles? Yeah, so we're starting to adjust it now. So we drafted our plan in 2022. And we did it early on. So nobody thought that the Fed was going to go as far as they did. I mean, there were a couple of people who were like, yeah, I was saying that. Like, okay, great. Like four of you, right? That. It's like the three people that like that perfectly predicted the GFC. For the majority of us, the kind of the, the center mass of that distribution curve, we knew increases were coming, but we didn't foresee the, the, the sheer level that they were there. There are going to be some people that did a great job of predicting that and they pulled way back. Absolutely, there was, but a lot didn't. And we did kind of in the middle, right? We, we knew we were coming into a higher debt environment. So we pulled back some of our acquisitions targets, but we didn't do enough. We didn't predict it as tightly as we would, uh, would have hoped now that we have hindsight bias. So what we're doing now, when we look at our strategic plan, our strategic plan is still relevant. The big thing that's probably shifted 
was instead of 2023 to 2025 to achieve our vision, depending on what the Fed does with interest rates, there's a decent chance it's 2027, maybe 2028. So there's a good good chance that like we have the right strategy. I think it just time might be the wrong answer, depending on what happens with interest rates and whatnot. But that's the thing. It just depends on how long the bid ask like divide keeps going out there. If the Fed's going to keep interest rates longer, yeah, that's going to be some pain on the refi side of the house if you don't have the equity and the juice to be able to refinance that. And it's going to force some sellers to do some distressed sales. But at the end of the time, you just underwrite that rate and you do deals that if they do drop are going to be fantastic deals. So I think I hear a lot of people are pencils down. I think that's stupid. And maybe I'm just not as smart as these other these other big investors, but to be pencils down is silly. To really tighten up your, your constraints and to increase your level of scrutiny to box in what you're going to do, like that seems to be like the right answer. And that's probably what's happening, even though they're like, no, we're pencils down. We're not looking at any deals. That's great if you have a great income stream, but man, there are always deals to be had in every market. You've just got to get creative and, and maybe it's not worth their time. Some of the big guys, it's probably not because are they going to do big deals? No, but that's really a competitive advantage with a small shop with us that has to be more scrappy. It's going to go out there and we're still going to try to do deals and a lot of them might fail and we might not be able to do them. And we're going to spend a lot of time underwriting a bunch of stuff. But I got to be honest, when I look at my acquisitions team, the hell else do they have to do? hundred percent. And I bet given the low barrier to entry in self-storage, that there was a lot of amateurs, people that aren't in it for the long haul that made investments, which will present tremendous distressed opportunities. How are you kind of leveraging your broker network? Because we talked about that as one of your competitive edges to get some of this deal flow that's just not going to be out there in everyone's domain. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, storage is an interesting thing. I don't think we're going to see like the massive distress that we're seeing in other other asset classes because we can move rents. And and the one thing that we have is we have the rent flexibility and dynamic pricing of hotels, but we have the stickiness of multifamily. So it's really this, this kind of the smattering together of two key operating levers that we can pull. And it's something called ECRIs, existing customer rent increases. So, you know, every, every, it's seven and 11 at seven months, they get a rent increase. And at 11 months, they get another one. And then, then it's generally annually after that. And for the most part, when you think of a storage rent, it's 80 bucks a month. So a 10% rent increase is $8. $8 instead of having to move all your shit out. And there's a lot of friction cost. I would light my storage unit on fire before I went in there and moved all my shit out of it. Right. So like eight bucks. I, Right. That's two. That's that's a marginally decent day at Starbucks. So when you think about that, that that's kind of one of the components of self storage is it's pretty low. And for people who really love their stuff and don't want to get rid of it, you know, paying 80 bucks a month for that. I, there's a lot of them that probably should empty out their units. But storage is used in a million different ways. So I think there's going to be some distress but it's not going to be like what we're seeing in office by any means or retail of, of years past, right? I, I just don't think we're going to see that because of the flexible nature and dynamic pricing of it that 
you're going to see some distress for sure. I think you're going to see distress in every real estate asset class is just because of the debt issues. It doesn't matter if you bought right or not. That's going to cause some issues for sure. I just don't think, I don't think there's going to be extreme deals out there. We are seeing some stuff come to market where people are having to do capital calls to, or to inject capital to get to DSCRs and stuff like that. But nobody's missing payments or anything else like that. They're busting technical defaults with the bank and they're just like, ah, like I can make a little bit of money here. Screw it. Just get rid of it. Right. I don't want to like put any more into this thing. That's what we're seeing. We're not seeing like, holy shit, this thing's going to a special servicer. So what processes and strategies have you put in place on the investment pipeline side and on the underwriting side to streamline it? and to make it really efficient so you and other leaders and executives in the team can quickly make decisions on deals? I mean, we look at some of the key metrics of everybody else, uh, weighted average cost of capital for a particular deal, return on invested capital, kind of our, our XIRR and our cash on cash multiples is just a really easy way to look at it. And ultimately the Spartan value, depending on how much we have to put in, right? So like what level of resources do we have to commit to a deal? If I have to commit $10 million resources, I'm going to make $1 million on the deal in five years, probably not something I'm super interested in doing. So our, our team has those metrics. So it's they're screening them out probably a little bit too good. There's probably a couple of deals that we should have probably wargamed a little bit more, but the team is being really conservative. It's just, it's part of our culture. Our values are our grit, growth, respect, integrity, tenacity, and transparency. And and people are really like, you know, in line with those values. And part of it's the respect value to kind of respect the ecosystem and know that, you know, no investment shop ever wants to lose money, but, and everybody's doing everything we can. Some people are more flippant than others with it. Cause this is investing, but ours are retail not capital. They're not, they're not a faceless fund or something along those lines. So we really kind of take that to heart to make sure that we do everything we can to not lose money. And sometimes we do a little bit too much. Cause we also don't make any money because we don't do the deal. <laughs> We missed one deal on it. We probably would have made 15 million bucks in the 18 months and we missed it by 300,000 bucks. That was stupid. Yeah, so that was really dumb. So how does that happen? Like, did that not come to you guys or did you get rid of it because you didn't agree with their gross assumptions? How, how did that happen? It was the growth assumption. So what it was, was a single property and it was the difference between like 6.8 million and 7.1 million. And we just couldn't get comfortable with 7.1 million because of the rent assumptions. We're just like, we're not, we're not, we don't see how we're going to be able to get there. This was very early on. This was like 2018 when we only had one or two properties and we were super nervous about taking people's money and putting it into deals when we were new. What happened was that like the, the people, so that deal came back to market. We missed it that it didn't come back to market and it got scooped up. And that seller sold three other properties just directly to the guy that bought that. It never came to market. It never got competitive. Yep. Wow. We we found out about it later and re-underwrote it. And I think the total deal traded for like 28 million for all four. We could have paid like 36 million. And I think it sold for like mid fifties, like 18 months later. So it was just, it was a good lesson learned. You know, we were new. I mean, we can look back and be like, oh, we, we should have done that. No, we shouldn't have because we didn't know what we were doing at that time. So we should have done exactly what we should have because now I'm looking back with hindsight bias. And of course I would go do that all day long, right? But I like, there's no way I would have taken it then because I didn't know what we were doing at that point in time. We were new, we were learning and that's what we were communicating to our investors. And we were being super conservative on that stuff to, to insulate. So if we made mistakes, we can push our chips over to investors to take care of them from those mistakes if we needed to, 
or there'd be additional monies in the deal that if we if we got this amazing deal to still hit the 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 return metrics that we needed to do out there. So we were just being ultra conservative to have that buffer if we made mistakes. I want to bring it home talking about four books that you recommended I check out. We were talking about a week ago and two of them I've read, two I hadn't. And I started reading The Great Game of Business over the weekend. I have the four disciplines of execution right here. Burn Harness Scaling Up, I already read. That was like a huge mistake that I waited five years to have that thing collecting dust on my desk to not read. And then Traction, I'm going to reread. How have you used those four books to build like proprietary, whatever you want to call them, tactical techniques at the company? You know, when you look at Scaling Up, it really talks about like there's tools out there that you can go get. It's called Scaling Up Tools or something like that. If you Google it, there's a PDF that you can download and it's a great tool. We really look at, at scaling up from the, the 10 Rockefeller habits. That's a big thing that we pulled away from scaling up to make sure that we have that stuff going on in the, in the business. And we don't. Like it, it, You have to be a very, very mature, organized, well-oiled machine to knock out. There's 40 things because each habit has four domains inside that habit. So there's 40 little checkboxes. You got to be pretty squared away to have all 40 checked. That's probably the main thing we took away from scaling up. From traction, it's really about the the weekly level ten meeting from the the organization side. We didn't really need the VTO. That was something that we had already done. The people analyzer in there, the four block, it's just a little bit simpler version of the top grading nine block. If you have an advanced HR team, the top grading nine block probably a little bit more detailed, a little bit more granular. But if you don't, if you're a smaller firm, like four blocks is better than zero, right? So. That was probably the really the big thing we took away from traction for four disciplines of execution, really the the dashboarding and allowing people to know if they win. That was the big concept we took away from that. And for great game of business, having people accountable for the finances and being able to calculate how much they can earn at the end of the year if we're going to hit targets. We're actually implementing a financial literacy and infrastructure for the great game of business for 2024. Those were the main things that we probably took away from each one of those pieces. So can you unpack the great game of business? Like how does one of your team members looking at a financial statement impact them? And and what have you kind of set up in your incentive plan to enable them to achieve that? We haven't said of anything. We're in the process of leveraging the great game of business to build our infrastructure for next year. But how we intend to do it is, you know, if you look at a P&L, mo- most people can't spell P&L, let alone understand how to read one. Yeah, right? they spell it P-N-L. So one, that's right. That's, <laughs> so it's it's one of those that we want people to have that financial literacy. So that was something that we thought was a pretty big thing for, for people to understand how a business works. Most people don't. If you ask your employees, like how a business works, they have no idea. Like they have no idea that like their paycheck comes from your pocket. Now, you can argue that your pocket wouldn't be there if it wasn't for their effort. Like, that's a true statement. But it's one of those things that it's just like uh, most people don't understand, especially a small business. You go to the public markets and stuff like that. It's obviously very different. But if you're a small business of 150, 200, 500 people and you're, and you're privately owned, for the most part, your teammates don't understand like how the money flows through the business and, and where it comes from. They think you are rich far beyond what you are in some cases. Some cases, it, it is a, a way to enrich yourself. That's what happens with a business, right? So just teaching them how to understand those financials and then how they impact it, right? 
So at Spartan, we have a heavily heavy focus on generating revenue and, and not going crazy on trying to pull expenses. We don't want those behaviors. We want people thinking like owners, and, and most owners think about like driving, like how can I make more money, right? They don't think about like how I can cut expenses. There's both, right? You can't be reckless with the expenses, but if all you're focusing on the ex- expenses, you're not going to have a very vibrant culture. It's going to be very hard to have both. I get it. The uh, the whole Amazon, like, hey, I'm going to have a desk built out of a door. Just for the record, some of the doors are more expensive than what you can buy a desk at Walmart. So like that hero shit where I'm just like tearing the door off and using that as a desk. I understand it. It was a metaphor for what Jeff was trying to accomplish. And obviously he did. So I shouldn't really be here talking smack about a guy that's gazillionaire, like flying around in a boat yacht. So uh, this thing that you know we do internally, we want people to be, hey, on the P&L, it says, I don't know, fizzy water. Because we, we provide snacks for our team. Well, what can I do to impact that? Because in ranger school, we had, a, we had a saying, ounces equals pounds. And like, you know, as you think about that, like every little thing matters. It, it shouldn't be the focus, but people should understand how they affect both revenue and expenses. So that's really kind of what we're going to implement from the great game of business. And they can figure out, are you going to earn a bonus or not? It's a yes or no. I'm not a fan of subjective bonuses, that's open to interpretation. And that's not great from for either perspective. If you're a leader, you got to come up with some stuff that says that I don't want to give this bonus. You can be an asshole and just say, because I said so. Not going to be a great way to like keep A players around. And if you're a team member and you don't get it, like you may or may not buy into whether like that's... And it just creates a an atmosphere of contention that doesn't need to be there if you clearly define it. All right. I want to end with like, maybe a little uh, a little coaching session here based on your shared experience. So we have one of our properties that had a huge budget miss in August. And like you, you know, we have a management company and an investment company and the operating team is responsible for the property level budget and income, but we missed top line revenue by a wide margin. So we're having a monthly business review tomorrow. And what I'm planning on doing is showing the team how that big revenue miss impacts the NOI. And then I'm going to take it a step further out of the hotel P&L onto kind of the ownership P&L, show the debt service, show all the expenses, show the impact that it's going to have on future CapEx reserves, future distributions, whatever it may be. So I'm going to have that conversation tomorrow. How would you go about doing that if that was your own team? And what would be some of the things that you would highlight to them to really drive home that, hey, we're all in this together and what you do has an impact on our ability to run the business and you know pay everyone? Do you have any sort of profit sharing plan or employee stock option or anything that the team members can benefit from the performance of the Investco? Yeah. On the investment side, our investment team can benefit. None of our hotel management team can benefit from the investment results. All of theirs are kind of before debt service. So they can get upside. In the case of a salesperson, it's purely revenue-based. And then there's kind of a catch-all. If the hotel lost money for some reason, we could claw some of that back. But that is the answer. So on the investment side, yes. On the management side, it's really more driven just towards revenue and and the profitability. 
I, I would, you can tie it. Like you always got to figure out what's the whiff them, right? What's in it for me? Like, what do they care about? And what do they, what can they not do now because they miss revenue targets that they might've been in in the future, additional training opportunities and, and whatnot to show them that says, Hey, like when there's more money in the system, you guys benefit X. If we miss this stuff, it's not just like, Oh, well, like no big deal. There's second and third order effects of us being able to acquire more properties. Cause if we miss returns and our investors are pissed, they stop investing, which means if they stop investing, we stop buying additional properties. So that promotion you want to area manager versus like store manager or whatever it is, is now gone. Now you guys want more opportunity. You need to drive revenue in these stores, which then produces good returns to investors. We buy more stuff and then we buy more stuff that provides promotion opportunities. We always try to tie it back to like, what's in it for them? Because again, for the most part, especially, you know, if you, if you go to the hourly worker, the benefits are so far removed from them, from the investor side that they, they can't really tie it together. We try to do the best we can to humanize it and to talk about like the benefits to them for us being able to buy more stuff. And hey, like, yeah, there's there's a lot of money going to these investors, but there's a lot of money coming back around, which provides opportunities for you to grow. A lot of, I think that's going to be very, very relevant because a lot of our hotel management team, we've definitely made a lot of forward investments and they're excited about potential growth. And we're not going to be able to raise money and do deals if we're not showing performance on past deals. And I think that's a great way to position it. All right. Thanks, Scott. So I have one closing traditional question I ask all guests on the podcast. I'm in the hotel business, obviously. So that is, what is your favorite hotel? Man, I am I am a simpleton, but probably the, my favorite hotel of all time has to be the Conrad on Koh Samui, Thailand. We showed up and it had just opened like literally the week before. And it was a couple buddies, a buddy and I and our wives were backpacking in Thailand. And we show up just looking like dirt bags with backpacks and stuff. And, and this hotel, it's, it's this, it's a weird hotel because it's all these little private villas cut into the side of a mountain overlooking a Marine park. And that was probably the, the best hotel that we had, you couldn't walk anywhere because the roads were so narrow. So we had to call and somebody would show up in a golf cart and move you around. And you know, the, like everybody's showing up in Mercedes and stuff and the clampets are showing up with backpacks and a taxi. So, but that was probably my, my favorite hotel. I love it. In a few years, you're going to be flying there in your jet. So it all comes full circle. Yeah. <laughs> as long as we produce the, the, the top line revenue and make the returns. You're going to do it, man. <laughs> Thanks for doing the podcast. I learned so much and you are very impressive and I can't wait to see how the company continues to grow and flourish. Appreciate it, Jake. Thanks for having me on. Hey everyone, it's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at jwerzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Mm-hmm.